0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast.
1: I'm Melanie Rosen and I'd like to listen to Radical Philosophy on 3CR Community Radio and that's 8.55 on your AM band.
0: You're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR A55 on your AM dial. Radical Philosophy is now on Twitter. You can find it by searching Rad Philosophy on Twitter and clicking follow to follow us and keep updated with the show. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument with words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Steward, Wolfe and Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy.
1: A person may be perfectly wonderful without being perfectly moral by the philosopher Susan Wolfe. This is from her article, Moral Saints. So we say
0: Thank you very much for tuning into Radical Philosophy. I'm your host Beth Matthews. Today on the programme I'm going to be speaking with Adjunct Assistant Professor Jean Cazes about philosophical parenting. Welcome to the program.
1: Uh, thanks very much. Thanks for having me.
0: So, could you give us some background information about yourself?
1: Okay, so I uh, teach philosophy at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, and I I write uh, primarily for a general audience. I sometimes write some academic stuff too, but I have a new book called *The Philosophical Parent*: Asking the Hard Questions About Having and Raising Children. And I've written two previous books. One of them is on the good life, and the other one was on animal rights.
0: So what was it that inspired you to study philosophical parenting?
1: Well, I became a parent. That's certainly an important step along the way. At that point, I, after having been a mother for a couple of years, I wrote a book on the good life. And there were a couple pages in there about how parenthood makes the parents' life better, or doesn't, uh, as the case may be. But I actually argue that it does make the parents' life better. And then it started to strike me that the whole question of how parenthood adds to our lives is tends to be neglected. So I thought at some point I would want to return to that topic. And so several years later, I wrote... I started writing The Philosophical Parent. Now, that sort of turned out to be about all aspects of parenthood and not just about the parent's life. Uh, so the book is a—it's kind of a chronological what to expect for the thinking parent that kind of goes through the, the many steps of deciding to have children, having children, taking them home, raising them, and so on.
0: Do you think that babies are lucky to be born, or is it just the opposite?
1: I think both of those views are actually incorrect. So there's the lucky-to-be-born view. Uh, There's an interesting passage in a book by Richard Dawkins where he says that at his funeral, he liked the thought to be expressed that while death is bad, the person who died was very lucky to exist to begin with. So that's kind of... worse for this idea that you're lucky to be born that's the source i had in mind but i think that's just not really the right view it's not really true because if you weren't born it's not as if you would be sort of stuck in the closet of non-existence or something it wouldn't be unlucky to be born so now on the other hand are you are you unlucky? so i I just argued that you're not lucky to be born Uh, but i also think that you're not unlucky to, to be born because, again, there's no sense in the contrast between existing and not existing. Um, you're not better off existing than you would have been if you hadn't existed. And you're not worse off either. So I think both of those views are incorrect. And your, your sheer existence doesn't make you lucky and doesn't make you unlucky either.
0: Why do you think it is that most of us want to have children
1: you know, I think people have all sorts of motivations. It's sort of a standard stage of life that makes you feel grown up. You, just, Some people just like children. They get approval from other people. And there's just, I think, a million and one reasons why people want to have children. But in my book, I focus on sort of one particular uh, thought that many of us have, and this might be implicit, it might be unconscious, it might be just sort of part of our background. But the thought is that a child is like a second self. So our concern for our children is very much like our our concern for our very own selves. And and so to have somebody like that in your life, it, it has a very much of a tendency to enlarge you or to you know expand yourself, and that kind of changes your your priorities. So as So that, you know, whereas before you have children, you've been been obsessed about all kinds of little things in your own life, there's something about having a child that just shifts your focus in a way that many people find very, very satisfying. So that's, that's the thing I focus on, although I don't think it's really true that it's, you know, it's the major reason. It's just something that I think is important in our thinking about having children.
0: It's been said that by having children, it gives us a kind of afterlife.
1: Yes. I I think that that's an important part of the picture. There's a philosopher by the name of Samuel Scheffler who has argued that um, although there is no literal heaven that we can look forward to or, or hell, just the existence of people in the future provides a kind of afterlife for everyone. And his view is that these future people don't particularly need to be related to us, but I think it it creates a much more sort of tangible, vivid afterlife for each of us that to know that we will have children who will continue to exist after we're gone, or grandchildren or people who are related to us and The reason for that is because our children are sort of self like to us so that for our children to keep going is somewhat like for our very own self to keep going. So yes, yeah, so I think you you know just for there to be anybody in the future is a kind of afterlife, but to have your very own children in in the future is even more so.
0: Could you explain about imaginary dystopia?
1: I guess I, in the in the book, I talk about a couple of different reproductive dystopias. One of them is from Plato, in his book, The Republic, he suggests that the, the rulers should create children in a kind of special, strange way, where they, the guardian class will only copulate with each other, and then their, their children will be raised, raised by nurses, and the children won't know who their mother or father is. And the idea of that is that will lead to the next generation of rulers and the, those new rulers will be completely impartial, because they just won't know who their their family is. I and mean, you get kind of a similar idea in Aldous Huxley's book, Brave New World, where babies are created in labs, and, again, nobody knows who their parents are. So, I mean, I think in these, the idea is that there's something beneficial about children not knowing who their parents are, but I think to most of us, these scenarios just seem dystopian and sort of awful. And the link between parent and child actually is a very important link, both both from the child's perspective and from the parent's perspective.
0: How are children not like teeth?
1: Okay, so strange idea. Why would anybody say they are like teeth? Aristotle makes the point that they are not like teeth. And he says this because... On his view, we experience our children as our own and as self-like because they come from us. So then you kind of get the immediate objection, well, our teeth come from us, our hair comes from us, but we can do anything we want to our hair or to our teeth. You can have your a tooth pulled, you can have your hair cut. So if this description of parents and children was just exactly a parallel with the the characterization of our teeth come from us, then it would imply that we can just do anything we want to to our children like we can to our hair. So I think what we need to understand and what Aristotle, of course, understands is that children are not just like teeth in coming from us, but they are also persons. So they are persons who come from us. And so, of course, there are different rules about what we may do to our children, then about what we may do to our teeth or to our hair.
0: Why do you think it is that we are more comfortable with seeing our children as second selves than seeing our parents as second selves? Okay,
1: so I think that it might seem as if the relationship would be symmetrical. So parents see their children as self-like because the children come from the parents' And similarly, children see their parents as self-like because they come from those parents. So you might think there's a sort of symmetry there, and kids feel towards their parents just what parents feel towards their kids. But it seems like that relationship isn't quite symmetrical, and so there is a sort of mystery about why that's so. Now, there are different sort of views about why that is so, but I would say a central reason why there's a difference is that uh, when you have children, it makes you feel sort of powerful and gives you a feeling of uh, you've done something great by having a child come from you. But when a child thinks of themselves as coming from the parent, it has a tendency to be sort of more disempowering. It makes them sort of feel small. Um, and I think that that's especially true in adolescence. So a, an adolescent child is sort of less is sort of reluctant to see the the parent as self-like. In fact, they might sort of really repudiate or feel a lot of hostility towards the parent. So there is that difference. But uh, I would say that in the fullness of time, there is more symmetry. So as children get to be adults and are thinking about their parents or having to eventually take care of their parents, the parent does become far more self-like than they might have been, you know, when the, when the child was an adolescent. And I think we can sort of see that in action because just as parents very spontaneously and generously care for their children sort of without any hesitation, I think it also is true that much later in life, adult children sort of spontaneously and generously take care of their parents. Um, and I think it, the, the explanation might just be the very same thing in both cases know, to the, to the uh, child, the, to the parent, the child is self-like and to the parent, the child is self-like. So that's sort of similar kind of things going on.
0: How does the fact that my child is another self but separate have ramification for the norms that govern parenthood?
1: Okay, so I think that there are many different ramifications. So let me just go talk about three of them. So first of all, I think that there are all kinds of doubts that people have about whether it's justifiable to have a child in the first place. We live in a crowded world, there are environmental problems, and so on and so forth, and so somebody might be very doubtful whether they they should have a child at all, but when you think of a child as sort of extending your own life, then that puts procreation in a different light. Uh, We certainly think that we're entitled to literally prolong our own lives. So, for example, if you you need a life-saving operation, you, of course, can just go ahead and have the operation without worrying about the overcrowded world and the environment. So if creating a child is creating a sort of more of yourself in some metaphorical sense, then we might want to think about the justification of having children in an analogous way. So, okay, so let me just be more quick on the on the other issues. I th- think it's also helpful to think of a child as, as self-like in order to understand why it is that we're entitled to raise our own children rather than giving them to the best available parent. I mean, in some cases, there might be somebody waiting in the wings who could do a better job, but I don't have to surrender my child. And the ex- best explanation, I think, is that the child is sort of a part of me and not a completely separate uh, individual. And the third thing is, uh, I think there is another sort of deep puzzle about why I'm entitled to share my own way of life with my child, and I don't have to kind of read up on I- ideal ways of raising children. I get to just share the life I already have. Again, I think a good way of explaining that is to realize that the child is sort of, in some sense, uh, part of myself. Rather than at a completely separate individual,
0: what do you think parents' role should be?
1: okay, so once you're actually you've decided to have a children and you took the kid home, you're sharing your way of life, you know now what you know I think now there is going to be a lot of sharing of your way of life, and but on the other hand, I think it would be you'd be a very bad parent if that's all you did. And so we kind of have to remind ourselves that while a a child is self-like to the parent, the child is also separate. So I'm actually getting these phrases from Aristotle, and Aristotle says children are second self but separate. He always stresses the but separate. And the separateness has to do with the fact that the child is a person in their own right who will go on and live their own life at some point completely separate from the parent and so I think part of the role of a parent is to prepare the child for that kind of independence, but also just to give the child a good life in the years of childhood. So I think there's sort of two different, different things there, or actually several different things. There's just sharing your own way of life, but there's also trying to give the child a good life and prepare the child for independence.
0: You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. And I'm speaking with Adjunct Assistant Professor Jean Cazes about philosophical parenting. Do you think that it's ever all right to lie to your children?
1: There's sort of two extreme views on that. But there's the very stern view that, you know, one must never lie no matter what. And then there's the very relaxed view that, you know, just go ahead and lie whenever it's useful. If, you have, if you're going to accomplish the greater good by lying, well, then just go ahead and lie. So I think both of those views just seem wrong. And it's, it's neither, neither never lie nor just lie whenever it's useful. So the view in the, in the middle says that lying to children is to be avoided and regrettable, and the reason for that is because when you lie, you sort of take away a competence from children that's very important, that seems very valuable, You know, the, the competence to just know about the world. So I think there are certain categories of lies that we can defend. There's the protective lie where you need to lie to the child because in some way it's, it's seriously in the child's best interest. There are entertaining lies. It seems like childhood is just naturally full of make-believe, and some lies are kind of an extension of make-believe. So they're not really serious lies. They're just part of the world of sort of storytelling. So there are various kinds of lies that are sort of okay. But I think, you know, most parents, when they lie, I think they feel kind of uncomfortable. And that makes sense. So that that's sort of telling us that, you know, we should lie carefully and and not promiscuously.
0: Do you think that we should raise children in our own image?
1: I think that's kind of a sort of a metaphor for sharing your own way of life. And I think that's just all to the good up to a point. Uh, So, for example, in our house, we played the Beatles all the time. We didn't sort of research, you know, what is the best music to play for developing a child's brain. We just played what we liked. And I think that's fine. Similarly, we shared our own politics with our, with our children. I think a lot of people hate the image of uh, parents taking children to Trump rallies, but we took our children to Clinton, Clinton rallies and other political events when they were young. And I think that's just sort of a legitimate sharing of your own life. You're, you're a parent, not a teacher. You don't have to kind of be objective and, and balanced. So I think that's, that's fine. But I think there's also, there are also limits. So if you just share your own way of life with your children, at some point you may be confronting a major rebellion. Maybe you're, you're taking the kids to the Trump rallies and they want to go to the Clinton rallies or, or vice versa. And I think where, where there is resistance, you have to kind of remind yourself you know, the child is a second self but separate. And ultimately, you know, eventually it's the separateness that kind of takes priority and and it has to be respected.
0: What responsibility do you think that we have towards our adult children?
1: I think when we are raising a child, part of what we're doing is we're preparing the child for adulthood. So we wouldn't be doing that if we didn't, think we had some kind of responsibility for the the person's welfare in adulthood. So that's part of part of the answer to the question. But another uh, aspect of the question is about adult children themselves. So once you're a parent of adult children, your children are 18 and above or 21 and above or 34 or 65 or whatever, do you still have responsibilities towards them? So I think that's a super interesting question and I guess because I do have adult children it's something I wrestle with and I'm not quite sure I'm <laughs> not to be perfect I'm not quite sure what the are, are the parents ad- obligations to adult children and I think in practice I do think I still have obligations but there are still there's some sort of tricky philosophical issues about why you have those obligations and for how long they continue
0: Should our children have a duty of care towards their parents?
1: This is another thing where it's easy for me to say what I actually do in practice. I I do think that I have a duty of care towards my parents. I have had to sort of fulfill those kinds of duties quite a bit because my parents are uh, quite elderly. Actually, I should say my father just very recently died. So, and that involved all sorts of fulfilling all sorts of what you might call duties of care. I think there are, can tell you what I do, but there's also this sort of underlying puzzle about why adult children have any duties to their to their parents. One way of thinking about the puzzle, it comes from a philosopher named Jane English, who uh, in a sort of well-known paper pointed out that whatever our parents did for us, we didn't ask them to do it. So we never signed on for existing or for all the things they they did for us. And so because their care just kind of came out of the blue like that, it seems odd to say that we owe them anything in return. So, you know, I think that there is sort of a puzzle about whether we really owe anything to our parents. But at the same time, I, I think the more important picture is the one I keep on returning to about sort of second selves, so if you if you think of your parent as sort of self-like, then I, it, the whole question of what your duties are to them in a way doesn't arise because it, it will just be sort of natural and spontaneous that you will do what is needed um, just as you do what is needed, you know, for your very own self. Do you have anything
0: else you'd like to mention that we haven't already discussed?
1: I wanted to just uh, say something about this idea of children as second selves and how it has some relevance to important issues around the world. So for example, in the United States we have this very uh, contentious issue about how immigrants are are treated and and how parents and children are being separated at the at the border between the US and Mexico. So I think there's a a hard question there about just why it is so very terrible for parents to be separated from their children, if it might be the case in some situations that the separation winds up being better for the child. So there are some cases that are in the news right now about parents who have been deported while children remain in the U.S., and it, and it, it appears that in some of these cases, the records have been lost and these children are going to remain in the united states being raised by other people now you might say to yourself well i mean it could be that that's better for some of these children but my intuition wrong with sort of belief is that parents have a right to their own children and so those deported parents uh their rights are being violated in a very serious way so then the question is well why do they have a right to their children Why shouldn't the children just go off and live a separate life, especially if it might be a better life? So I think this story about how children are self-like to their parents gives us the tools to explain just why it is that the parents really do have a right to those children, and so this current situation is seriously a moral travesty. And you get sort of cases like that around the world. So I think while the focus of my book is on sort of the first-person perspective of of a Western parent, the ideas of the book actually have some relevance to these kinds of serious moral issues.
0: Well, thanks very much for coming onto the program today.
1: You're very welcome. I enjoyed it.
0: And I've been speaking with Adjunct Assistant Professor Jean Cazares about philosophical parenting. I hope you've enjoyed the program as much as I have. And be sure to tune in next week.